as the gathered church together. We continue today in our series through Romans 8. We are walking through that. We have just a few more weeks left as we walk piece by piece through Romans 8. We're also memorizing this passage together as a church family, and I hope that is going well because Romans 8, 1 through 4, so I'm going to put myself on the spot, so let's see how I do. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in, and, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us by those who, not, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we continue to memorize that as a church. If you fall a little bit behind, that's okay, because after this week we'll memorize Romans 8.5. We're going to have a built-in review week. So if you fall a little bit behind or you just need some time to review, we'll have that together. And as we continue to memorize this, this passage together and we read through Paul's epistles together as a faith family. We've seen so far in Romans 8, and really as we've read through the book of Romans in our, our Bible reading plan, in Romans chapter 1, we see that uh, Paul starts out with God's wrath and condemnation on sin. He describes it, and it's really not a pretty picture, is it? This wrath and condemnation of God on sin is because God is holy and He is just. But then in Romans 2, Paul explains to the Gentiles, remember writing to some Gentile readers, how sinful they are. And if we understand Paul's letters, there's division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And you can almost see that the Jewish readers would have been like, that's right. Those Gentiles, they are wicked and uh, they are sinful. And yeah, they're horrible. But then Paul nails them in Romans 2 because he says that they are blaspheming the name of God in front of the Gentiles and being a poor example to them. Then Paul in Romans 3, he writes, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter Every human being is sinful, that there's no one that do, does good, no one who understands. Then Romans 4 and 5, Paul establishes to us as we read that salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, not by being good. There's nothing that provides salvation other than, the, uh, other than faith through Jesus Christ. And then we see in Romans 7, and Romans 7 is kind of a depressing chapter, but I, I, I find peace in it, uh, because Paul writes that even though someone who becomes a believer, they're still going to struggle with sin, right? You remember that in Romans 7, spastic Paul, he's got like ADHD. He's like, all the things I'm not supposed to do, I do, and the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do, and what a wicked, wretched man I am. I mean, he's just tearing himself apart, because even as a believer, he continues to sin. And I read that, I'm like, even if the Apostle Paul can fight his sinful nature, I will too, and there's victory in that. And then we come to Romans 8, and Paul is just throwing a big party, right? There's a big celebration here in Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing, and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's a relief, there's celebration here in Romans chapter 8. And so far what we've seen in Romans chapter 8 Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is spiritual freedom in Christ, that the guilt and the judgment of sin is removed for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And then because of Christ's work on the cross, the sacrifice for sin was sufficient. 
And there was a great exchange that took place on the cross. Christ exchanged, uh, exchanged our place on the cross for us, and he took on the condemnation for us. And then we received righteousness, the righteous requirement of law. We received that. He substituted himself in our place. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw Paul. He compares human depravity and salvation. He compares the two and shows the glory and the joy of and freedom of salvation. And then last week, we saw the terms of our relationship with God. And what, are, what is that relationship like? It's deeper than just a friendship. It's a family relationship. We saw that God is our Father, that the Holy Spirit bears witness with the life of the believer, that they are a believer, that they are a Christian, and that the believer, that, that, that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the believer that they are God's child, and that our spirit cries out what? Abba, Father. And that through the work of Christ, we receive the spirit of adoption. We are adopted as God's sons and daughters through salvation. And then because we are his sons and daughters, that we are heirs with Christ. Or as some translations say, joint heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ receives as the Son of God, we too receive. We too receive. We are heirs with Christ. The entire, we inherit the entire estate, as we talked about last week. Well, today, we're gonna, the, the, our, this section of Romans 8 takes on a little different tone. Because in Romans 1 through 17, we see the gospel, kind of a culmination of the gospel. The gospel's kind of put into a nutshell, packaged together in Romans 1 verse 17. But now we come here and we're going to see how the gospel answers some difficult questions for us. The, the, the gospel helps make sense of life. In an unsensible world, the gospel helps make sense about suffering and why bad things happen, and then that because of the gospel and the work of Jesus, we have future hope because of the gospel. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at uh, verses 18 through 25 this morning. Our uh, suffering and future glory. So let's look at verse 18 through 25, and this is what Paul writes to us. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I think if we were all honest, there's been a point in time of our life that we have asked the question, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? Why does a God who is sovereign over all things allow bad things to happen? Now let's be transparent, let's be honest. How many of us have ever had that question before, okay? Good, most of us. Why do bad things happen? I think 
in my own life where I was most confronted with that, and I've told the story of April 27th, 2011. Mary Lane and I, it was three days before we got married, we were living in Birmingham, Alabama, and the entire Birmingham and Tuscaloosa area was hit with a horrible F5 tornado. And in the Birmingham, Tuscaloosa area, over 200 people were killed by that tornado, and hundreds and hundreds lost their home. I'll never forget our church. We went into an area just north of downtown Birmingham, and we went into that area, and we saw just the destruction that that tornado had had. This had been like, it was three weeks later, and we went in and remember seeing mattresses, up, king-sized mattresses up in trees. I remember seeing um, pieces of wood from branches broken out and stuck into the side of a brick wall of a community center. That was the force of that wind. I remember seeing pieces of sidewalk that had just been sucked up off of uh, its foundation. I don't know how you build a sidewalk, but it just it, uh, that was just uh, sucked up. And I remember seeing people who had lost their homes, and I remember thinking, where was God on April 27th, 2011? Maybe you had a similar uh, thought on September 11th, 2001. Where was God when that happened? Where is God when bad things happen? Where is God when the natural disasters happen that kill hundreds of people? Or why can a disease like AIDS run rampant in Africa and kill thousands? Or why can dictators rule and terrorize whole nations? If God is really sovereign and control over all things and good, why do those things happen? There's been a gentleman who uh, is from India, and he was raised um, Hindu, who comes by our church, lives just a couple of blocks from our church, and comes and, and talks with Cheryl and I, and asking questions about Christianity. And this is one of the questions he really struggles with. Like, how can God, who is good, how can there be such suffering in the world? And he's, he's told me some of the things he has seen in India, and and some of things that have happened to his own family, and how can a God who claims to be good to allow bad things to happen? Well, the gospel helps us shine light on this, and I want to be careful this morning that I don't want to oversimplify everything, but here's the reality for those of us who are believers. We have a different perspective on life. We view the world differently. It's a, it's a worldview. We, we view the world differently. And as we view the world through the gospel, we will understand the big picture of what's happening and what God is doing. We may, we may never fully understand why there is suffering in the world and why bad things can happen, but we will understand God's ultimate redemptive plan and the future glory that we will receive as believers that helps put things in perspective. So you should have some notes, some fill-in-the-blanks there in your worship guide. And so we're going to look at four, four things the Gospels helps us understand about suffering. First, number one... Creation suffers because of sin. Creation suffers because of sin. Look at verses 19 through 22. Let's read it again. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
So Paul here is saying, this is interesting, that even creation, nature, is waiting, is groaning for the conclusion of the salvation of God's people because that will be the final release from corruption that all creation has been in since the fall of Adam and Eve. You see, what Paul's saying here is when God created the world, and this passage assumes that, and that is a foundational belief to Christianity, we have to believe that God created the entire universe. That's how the Bible stands, starts out. Genesis 1.1, what's it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after God created the entire world, the entire universe, what did God say it was? I'm thinking of a four-letter word. It was what? Good. It was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was in its place. It was good. It was perfect. But then we see what happens. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate the fruit that God told them not to. And then sin entered into the world. It was no longer good. It was no longer perfect. The innocence was gone. Well, in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 18, God told Adam and Eve, Cursed is the ground because of you. Wouldn't, can you imagine what that must have been like by Adam and Eve? Like, oh, the ground is cursed because of me. And Paul says, look again in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected it? Adam. Adam and Eve. And so because of that, sin enters the world. And so God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. All the days of your life, you're going to have to work hard to survive. Both thorns and thistles will grow for you. Have you ever wondered why, you know, if you have a garden, you have to constantly be pulling weeds and everything? That's a sign of a broken uh, creation. So God's creation that was once perfect was now flawed and broken. And even the animal world is cursed because of sin. Hold your finger here in Romans 8, but turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Turn over there into the Old Testament. Even, even uh, the animal world struggles with this. Romans, uh, or Isaiah 11, verse 6 through 9. This is a description of what the new kingdom, Jesus Christ, when he comes back, what it's going to look like. And it says here, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall, shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the, and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." What Isaiah is describing, like what the new heaven and new earth is going to look like after Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. And what we read just there in Isaiah 11, that's not what we see today, do we? We don't see a leopard and a goat hanging out together. Like, have you ever been to a zoo? And sometimes I say this and my family teases me and thinks I'm kind of gross. But I always think, wouldn't it be interesting? You're standing there and you're looking at the goats. Wouldn't it be interesting to release a leopard or a lion in there? Just to see what happened, what would happen. What would happen? I think we all know what would happen to those goats. They would be eaten. 
And so even the violence and the, uh, the death that is displayed in creation, and even in the animal kingdom, is a result of the curse on mankind's sin. But one day, I look forward to this day, but one day, when Jesus returns as King Jesus, believers will receive the full redemption that is promised to Christ. Creation will be made good and perfect again. When Paul mentions in verse 18, look again, now turn back over to Romans 8, look again at verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When he says the sufferings of this present present time, he's not talking about a specific difficult time. When we read that, it can be easy for us to think, well, the difficulties of right here, right now. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this, that's, that all of creation, since the fall of humanity, of Adam and Eve in the garden, has been marked by suffering. All of human history has been marked by this. We see wars, natural disasters, diseases, crime, and on and on and on. It's a direct result and a proof of the fallen sinful world we live in. Creation suffers because of sin. Creation is in the state it's in because of sin. But here's the beauty of God's creation. That though, yes, it is broken, yes, it's suffering through futility, it still points to the truth about God and His glory and majesty. Because David wrote in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says that, you can, that we, can be, we can be brought to the knowledge of the existence of God by just looking at nature. So yes, creation points to the truth of brokenness and sinfulness, but it also points to the truth of God's majesty and His glory. So one, creation suffers because of sin, but two... Come on. There it is. Believers suffer because of sin. Believers suffer because of sin. Look at verse 23 of Romans 8. Paul says, Not only the creation suffers, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sins, the redemption of our bodies. There's a false teaching that over the last few decades has infected the church, not specifically this church, but the American church especially in general. And this false teaching that has entered into the church is that God wants every Christian to be healthy and wealthy. It's called prosperity gospel. That if, if, I, if I am a Christian, if I believe in God, that all of my problems will be solved, right? Or if I am good and I give a certain amount of money, God will bless me with all kinds of wealth. Or, you know, if I please God with my life, I'll be blessed with good health. That all of my problems will be solved because I believe in God. That is a dangerous teaching, because what is the true reality that we live in? Good things happen to bad people. It does. That's the reality we live in. 
And so if we teach that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy and that God just, if we believe in God and have enough faith that all of our problems will go away, what is going to end up happening is our faith will crumble because we're basing our faith in our circumstances. We're basing our attitudes in our circumstances. And if we base our attitudes in our lives on our circumstances our faith in God will, will face a pretty severe confrontation. And so we have to avoid that teaching. It's a very dangerous teaching. The reality is that difficult, difficult circumstances are going to come in our lives. It is unavoidable. There's going to come times in your life and my life that we are going to suffer because of sin. Cancer exists because of sin. Our bodies break down because of sin. It's part of the human curse. But here's the beauty of Christianity, so don't miss this. Here's the beauty of Christianity, is that we believe and we worship a God that identifies with our difficulties and our sufferings. Isaiah 53.3, Isaiah was telling God's covenant people, Israel, what the Messiah was going to be like. And what did Isaiah say? He said that even God who came as God incarnated in Jesus Christ will know our griefs and know our suffering. God would come in the flesh as Emmanuel, God with us, and he would face the limitations of being a human being. He would be sick. He would be tired. He would be acquainted with grief. John 11, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, died. And John eleven thirty five 35 says what? Jesus wept. He grieved. Jesus is acquainted with our sorrows and our griefs. Jesus knew suffering. So when we go through suffering, and we will, We will be faced with the temptation to think, God is a million miles away. God has no idea what I'm going through. That is not true. God understands your grief. God understands your suffering. That doesn't mean it will go away. But you have a God that identifies with your suffering and identifies with us in suffering because Jesus, He too, as Gary read, suffered. Then number three, though suffering is real, God still has a redemptive plan. Though suffering is real, God still has a redemptive plan. When we see suffering in the world and we see bad things happening and we see crime and we see wars and we see natural disasters and diseases, it can cause us to doubt God's love, his, God's goodness, or His power. And we can think, you know, when something bad happens, we can think, where was God when that happened? Where was God when that happened? Or maybe we think, well, it's one thing for wicked people to go through something like this, but how could God, who is the God of love and is all power, how could He allow a good person to suffer? And let me Let me just say, we don't have enough time to completely unpack those answers. And those answers to those questions are difficult, they can be complicated, but as we look at the big picture of why bad things happen in suffering, remember, as believers, we have to look at it through the lens of the gospel. The story of redemption, that redemptive plan that God has. Because as we do that, look again at verse 18. 
as we do that, we can say what Paul says here in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not even worth comparing. So as we look at the gospel, because in Christianity we believe and we know that Jesus is coming back again. That he is going to come back as a king, and he's going to rule and reign. In Revelation 21, it says that he will establish a new heaven and new earth. And in this kingdom, all pain, all suffering, all grief will be wiped away, and there will be true peace on earth. And you say, Adam, that sounds like so far away, and that is going to be a long time from now. And even sometimes we can have this idea that that new heaven and new earth that King Jesus is going to come and establish, that we'll all be kind of walking around in this dreamlike state. And that this new heaven and new earth will will kind of have this, it'll be like an out-of-body experience. Folks, that is not true. That the new heaven and new earth, this future eternal glory that that believers will inherit, it will be more real than you and I sitting here right now. So it's going to be a reality. And that brings us hope. We look at verses 20 through 21. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This reality of knowing that one day Jesus will come and make everything right gives us hope. If you remember in the past month and a half, two months, our church, we put crosses on our front lawn right out here behind me on our state line side of our campus. We put crosses out there for every one of the murder victims in the Kansas City area of Johnson County, Jackson County, and Wyandotte County. And we had that service. Most of you were here uh, for that longest night service where uh, we had a, a time, a message of hope and sharing for those families who had recently lost a loved one due to homicide. And in Kansas City in 2016, nearly 200 people uh, died due to homicide. So it's, it's, it's a problem in our, our city, a problem in our community. And the media was here covering the media and they would ask me, well, what's the answer to this? Why is this happening And I told him, well, I don't want to oversimplify it, but to me, this is not a political problem. This is not a gun control problem or anything else we can try to slap on it. This is a spiritual problem. This is a spiritual problem because the reason why people are unfortunately killing each other and suffering is because of sin. It's a sin problem. And it was an opportunity. And they asked me, well, then why are you as a church... Why are you at church doing this? Are you trying to send some kind of statement? I said, no. We're trying to give a message of hope because we believe that one day King Jesus is going to come and there will be no more crime. There will be no more, no more murder and there will truly be peace on earth in his kingdom. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now, unfortunately, they didn't include much of that in the news coverage and I knew they probably wouldn't and that's okay. But that is the perspective we have as believers on something like murder and homicide. 
It's because of the future hope of Jesus coming again and bringing peace on earth. That's the looking through the lens of the gospel, of understanding that God is at work. We may not fully understand what's going on now, but that he has a redemptive plan that is, unfold, that is unfolding. And we can be a part of that plan as, to believe, as, as his believers. And as Christians, we have to view every issue in life through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of scripture, and have God's perspective on that issue so we can correctly understand it. And then finally, number four, and let's leave this on hope, the future will be marked by glory for believers as God fulfills his promises. In closing, look at verses 23 through 25. It says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, key word there, hope, for in this hope we were saved, Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Brother, sister in Christ, we have a future that is marked by glory and of hope because of God's promises. But let's talk about that word hope for just a second, because Paul talks about that. What is the nature of hope? Like, I don't know if we have any Patriots or Falcons fans, but if you're a Patriots fan or you're a Falcons fan, my brother-in-law is a big Patriots fan. He lives in Rhode Island. He is hoping that the Patriots will win tonight. Okay? He's probably in the minority. I think most people are cheering for Atlanta tonight, because we're all just tired of the Patriots winning all the time. But there are people hoping for their team to win. If you're a sports fan, we know hope. We hope for our team to win. We understand hope. Well, what is hope? Believing in something that we cannot see. We hope for things. Well, that is as a believer. So if you're a believer this morning, our salvation includes hope. Because we don't see it. We don't see that future glory. We don't see our, 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 our future glory. We don't see what that's going to look like. We did not see Jesus crucified. We did not see him resurrected. So our entire what belief system is based in hope and is based in faith. Things we cannot see, things we cannot touch or hear or taste. It is hope. So what do we have to base our hope, our faith in? It's the promises of God. God fulfills his promises. And what are some of those promises? And we could spend a long time walking through the different promises of God. But John 14, 6, Jesus told his disciples, Jesus said, I'm going to leave here. And what were the disciples' response? It was They were like a child being dropped off at the nursery, saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't leave me here. They didn't like that idea, but Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about a home in heaven. Jesus told them, I'm going to give you a comforter, which was what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come and be my presence in your life. 
the promises that Jesus is going to come again and establish a kingdom of heaven. And the beauty of the gospel is that, yes, though we will go through suffering, we will go through difficult times in our lives, and we are surrounded by a broken, suffering world, the gospel provides us with hope that, pers- that keeps us persevering and motivated in this life, and it compels us to share it with our world. So as we walk away from here, let's walk away with a gospel perspective on why things happen in life. Let's understand that, yes, suffering is real, but God has a redemptive plan that is still unfolding. We can't see it. We don't even know exactly what that's going to look like. But we can know that that future is marked by glory for for us as believers because God comes through on his promises. We can take it to the bank. Then you may be here this morning and you're not a believer. You're not even sure about this whole Christianity thing. I can understand that. And you're looking, you're grasping at something to help you understand the problems of this world. Can I just encourage you with one thing? The, gospels contains, the gospel contains answers. A relationship with God contains answers. And so let me encourage you to pursue that, to study it out for yourself, to see the gospel perspective on suffering and future glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your redemptive plan, the gospel, that, that can help us understand what's taking place. We may, may not ever fully come to a full comprehension here on earth, God, but we, we, we can know and we can trust and have hope that we have a future glory waiting for us. I ask that you would make these truths real in our lives, God. We, we can't see these things. We can't touch these. We, we, it's difficult at times for us to comprehend these things. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just help us to come to a comprehension of these things and to trust you and place our hope in you in a greater way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Roxanne's going to play for just a moment here, and I encourage all of us to just take a moment here to meditate on these truths, maybe to read back through these passages and this passage and look there in our notes, and just have a couple of minutes of some private time of prayer and reflection.
Father, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the cross and all the forgiveness and healing that it brings. Um, Father, I pray that you'll, you'll help us to radiate that love out on the world and help us to bring a little more love and a little more healing out into a world that needs it. Father, we thank you for all that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a couple of announcements I want to go over, and then we'll have a very special baptism. Um, tonight for the Super Bowl party, one more time, if you're planning on bringing chili, make sure that it's here and checked in before 5 o'clock. Check-in will be from 4.30 to 5 o'clock. As soon as it hits 5 o'clock, we're going to start judging. Um, and then game kicks off at 5.30, and we'll be able to kick back, relax, and enjoy the game after that. Um, since Adam didn't announce it earlier, youth retreat, it's not too late to sign up for it. Uh, the sign-up forms are in the, in the foyer over here. Uh, you need a medical release and a sign-up form. Those are due next week. And then also, last thing, if you haven't gotten involved in a Wednesday night group yet, it's not too late. We've got three or four different Wednesday night groups going on here at the church at 6.30 every Wednesday evening. So please feel free to come. If you're not sure which one you fit into, call the church office and we'll get those involved. All right. have the privilege as a faith family uh, this morning to uh, witness and celebrate the baptism uh, of Chang, and uh, we're just so thankful for God bringing Chang and Lee and their three boys uh, to our church, our gift to our church, and uh, Chang came to me a, a few weeks ago and he said, um, Adam, I want to follow, uh, follow God's leading in my heart and life for believer's baptism. Uh, by immersion. So Chang's going to explain a little bit uh, what's going on in his life and his uh, testimony of how he came, he came to know Jesus, and then we'll baptize him. Okay. Uh, when I was uh, three years old, I went to a Presbyterian church uh, with my sisters for the first time in my life. Since then, I have grown up um, in the Presbyterian church. Uh, if someone asked me when I became a believer, I would say that um, it was when I was five years old because uh, it was the first time God began revealing himself in my life. So uh, God, uh, by God's grace and mercy, I came to believe and confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is my Savior and my Lord in my childhood. Thanks to God's faithfulness, my faith in Christ has not changed. So I was baptized by sprinkling in 1993 when I was in high school, but I want to be baptized again by immersion today to confess before you all that um, 
I was buried with Christ and was raised to new life with Christ. Amen. Thank you, Chang. It is based upon your profession of faith that I baptize you, my brother in Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. We've had the privilege this morning of uh, witnessing Chang's uh, baptism, and we're just so thankful of God's work in his life. And uh, with every privilege comes a responsibility. And as a church, we need to pray for him as he continues on into his uh, spiritual growth. And so here's what we're going to do. I would like for you to gather with someone close to you. And at this time, just praise God for uh, the opportunity uh, we've had to witness uh, Chang's baptism and for God's work in his life. And then also, another thing comes to my mind. As a church, this is how we define success. This is how we define success. Seeing people profess to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then witnessing their baptism, and then seeing them discipled. And so as you gather, as we gather together and pray, let's pray that we would continue to see this over and over again. It's not by any grand strategy of our, uh, of, our, of our own making. It's not anything we do, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to be at work among us. And so a church that prays is a church that sees spiritual growth. And so gather with someone close to you. Pray for just a couple of minutes that we'll see this continuing on in the life of our church We've had three baptisms in the last four months, and praise God for that. That's all his doing. That's his grace in the life of our church. So let's continue to ask the Holy Spirit to be at work in the lives of people. So gather with someone close to you. Thank God for this baptism we've seen today and that we would continue to see God at work. And then I'll close our service in prayer. <laughs> 